0: Blockbuster was hundreds of times bigger than we were, hundreds. We listened to an earnings call one time, and somebody asked, when the analyst asked John Antioca, the head of Blockbuster, what do you think of Netflix? And he said, they are a gnat. They are no one, they're nothing, no one will ever do this. People love video stores. Don't ask me about that stupid little company again.
1: For will Recur, it's Protect the Hustle. A show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on today's show, how Patty McCord went from border towns and Oregon lumberyards to building the culture that brought Netflix a $160 billion market Company culture means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but it's not because there's a lot of definitions of company culture, it's because culture has been co-opted by things like perks, what snacks are in the kitchen, and and ultimately ping pong tables.
2: Right. Culture is your bill of rights. It's your constitution, your writing on the wall, it guides all of your decisions, it allows you to thrive and survive.
1: I don't know if I exactly agree. No? Well... Because if you think about companies, right, I, I think that writing things down is definitely a part of it. Don't get me wrong here. But think of companies like Enron or even more recently Theranos. These are companies that had values like integrity written on their lobby wall and still they acted in fraudulent ways. It's true. Well, I mean, we'll have to see what Patty says. Culture, and, and I learned a lot of this from Patty, it's, it's more of the collection of habits that you accept and nurture within your organization. At the end of the day, it's gonna make or break your business. That makes sense. The whole
2: concept of we are what we repeatedly do.
1: Exactly, and this is this is ironically polarizing, as we'll find out in a bit, uh, coming from Patty McCord. And for those of you who don't know, Patty McCord has been leading teams, recruiting teams, building teams, nurturing teams for number of decades in Silicon Valley um, and outside of Silicon Valley. And most notably, she was the chief talent officer over at Netflix, which is a nice small little company.
2: Ah, uh, yes, I I am familiar with Netflix.
1: Well. She recently published a book
2: called Powerful, which makes some waves in the world of People Ops, and it was built off the back of the infamous culture deck, which seems to go viral once a quarter or so.
1: Yeah, and we're going to talk about that culture deck a little bit later for those of you who aren't familiar, because it it is a pretty controversial piece in People Ops. Uh, for, for better and for worse, I I suppose to me, her views get deep into what is right. And what is the truth and not necessarily what feels good or what feels to be the most comfortable. But I think a perfect place to start considering that culture is who you are and the sum of the behaviors and the activities and the experiences that you've had is to actually start with Patty McCord's background. And what we'll find is it starts in a very, very far place away from Silicon Valley you started your career in a lumber yard
0: right out of high school and I lived up in Oregon I didn't have any work to do one winter and I didn't want to go home and admit failure so <laughs> I got a job in a lund- lumber mill
1: that's cool and one other thing that I thought was great is you dedicated your book to your dad yeah um, and I'm, I'm gonna butcher the statement but it was the one of the first leaders you knew Mm -hmm. do you mind telling me no
0: my dad was a border patrol guy he was in the border patrol Mm. we moved every two years of our life from one crappy little border town to the other he was the youngest chief of border the border patrol in arizona i think about him now because the kids in detention centers would break his heart he took it seriously. He was a good old boy, grew up really poor, did this job because he had missed out on the military, so it was closest to it. And he was just, speaking of develop. he read for, he was the smartest guy with no education. You know, he, he would run circles around me. And he also, he listened, right? I mean, we did not get along, <laughs> Yeah. He's a Texas Republican in terms of, but he, but I could have a political argument with him and I felt like I was hurt. He pushed me to be smart all the time. So here's a dad story. Reed decided that. Um, We were big enough now that we were interfacing with other companies who had C-level executives. So we were gonna all have C titles, so you're the CMO and you're the CFO. So he said, Patty, I've decided to call you the Chief Talent Officer, and I said, (laughs) <laughs> like, oh, gag me. And, he's, and he gets, he's like, what do you mean? I thought, I thought, I <laughs> thought it was really great because, like, you're kind of like, it goes like with movies, you know, you're in charge yeah. of the talent. And it really is about the talent, and that really is what you do. And I don't think it's dorky at all. I'm like, okay, you know what, that sounds great to me. I'll be, I like CTO because I can tell the geeks I'm the CTO. But I remember calling my dad, like, dad, I'm a cheap. He's like, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. I miss my dad.
1: So do you want to call your dad right now? Yeah. Can we take a break? Uh, We can, not but I can remind you later to call Tim. (laughs) Big shout out to Tim.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, I don't know if I've ever met a person in people ops like Patty. I mean, to me, they're always handling legal paperwork, hiring, snacks in the
1: kitchen, you know, stuff like that. Patties do exist out there. Now, there's plenty of non-patties, but the patties that do exist, they're basically there taking people ops from this world of just making sure checkboxes are checked and I's are dotted and T's are crossed to this world of performance and getting the most out of your team. And that might seem very natural to you and and me as we try to cultivate this at ProfitWell and we work with a lot of really high-performing companies as our customers. But what we'll find is this is just very, very far from convention.
0: Everybody does it the same way, so it must be best practices. So, I mean, nobody questions anything. There's a whole generation of HR people who are, exist to protect the company from evil, meaning lawsuits from evil employees. So they're convinced that a whole bunch of stuff they have to do because it's against the law if they don't. It's just not true. And then in the last... Five, ten years, now the pendulum's gone. <clears throat> and now we're happy people. And bartenders on the payroll, and eight craft beers versus seven, nine kinds of flavored water. And, and then the HR people, they don't, they don't do anything. I mean, they order T-shirts and do parties. And so they're kind of soulless, lifeless.
1: It's almost like HR became legal and, and not product.
0: So it's crazy to me. That's the whole, my whole point. Why do we have a language around product that's selfless, that's straightforward, that's metrics-based, that's honest, right? And then we can't, like, so let's say, let's use the same metaphor, Right. Um, we want to develop a product that has to go to market because of competition in the next six months. We have to have a competitive offering that addresses these particular issues that a competitor is addressing better than us and it has to happen. Well, you have to have the right people on the team to do that, right? You can't, go, you can't miss the opportunity because you don't have the right people. That's how it changed it for us. We were like, oh my God, this is ours for the taking. With the right team. When you and your team are up against that decision, like, yeah, we could do that, oh, we can't, because we don't know how, or we don't have the right people, that's why you're in management. That's your job, right? It's your job is to put together that team that delivers to your opportunity. And opportunities come like this. Right. So I I don't have any problem at all developing people. I don't have any problems at all having people learn on the job. I don't. It's just that time time thing that we don't do very well. You know, I talk to startups and they're like, someday and I start to I talk to corporations, they're like, Well, our five year plan you're both wrong. The five year plan is it's just smoking dope. It's just an exercise, right? It's wishful thinking. And, and some days is too. It's not crisp enough.
1: Your company is a product in and of itself, and it requires proactive care and attention to scale it to high performance. And the controversial piece here really is around responsibility, because it's your responsibility, it's our responsibility to take care of that company and get it into a high-performance mode, or at least accept the consequences if we're not able to basically make it great. So tell me a
2: little bit more about that, because I don't really understand how that bucks convention.
1: Well, it really comes down to history. So if we go back about 150 years,
0: a little bit of a history lesson.
1: So pre-Industrial Revolution and in the Industrial Revolution, working conditions are terrible. Uh, you essentially have people literally who are cogs and machines, people are dying, uh, mainly because there's no labor laws, there's just, there's just no workers' rights. Labor movement comes along and says, hey, you need to let people survive, and you can't force child labor. All things that most of us can agree on and may have some marginal problems here and there, but there were no laws, and now there were laws. So all of a sudden, you have checkboxes. You have I's that need to get dotted, you have T's that need to get crossed. Then post-World War II, you had another big revolution in labor rights because all of a sudden the huge workforce disparity with men and women got changed where more and more women were going to the workplace. Civil Rights Act of 1964, all of a sudden you have more and more laws. So all of a sudden there's just this huge collection of laws in less than 75 years and who's going to take care of those laws and who's going to make sure that we're compliant? You're not gonna give it to the sales leaders because they're selling. You're not gonna give it to the product leaders because they're building or they're manufacturing things. So you have this world of people ops or HR where it's responsible for recruiting and it's making sure that people don't go to jail and that people are essentially taking care of things. And and somewhere along the line, we, we ironically lost the people aspect of human resources, or of people ops.
2: Right, so I want to touch on that a little bit. You said HR has kind of become this epicenter of legal and recruiting.
1: Exactly, and as product gets easier to build, it's infinitely easier to build a product versus 50 years ago, let alone five to 10 years ago, and distribution gets harder, and mobility of employment gets infinitely easier, thankfully, you know, the developed world continues to develop, all of a sudden we're in a world where your biggest asset and liability becomes what it should have been all along, your people. Right. So, what about that? What about that other piece? Well, the other aspect of this is is taking responsibility or this personal responsibility on, on an individual level, and it, it's tough because people are tough. Like, for example, have you ever tr- have you ever given someone negative feedback?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. It's
1: it's tough, right? Because. You're sitting there and you don't want to be mean, you want to be direct, but you also, you know, you want to consider the feelings of the other person. And even if you know the feedback is 100% right and it needs needs to be taken care of, it's still really tough. But the easiest thing to do for a manager, especially when it comes to feedback, is invent the performance review, right? It's one year. People Ops handles it. You don't have to really take care of it. You don't have to do much. And then you basically absolve yourself of the responsibility of giving that consistent feedback and that consistent checking in with your team members. Seems like a lot. It is, but but as Patty's about to tell us, it, it doesn't necessarily require an exorbitant amount of work. It just takes diligence and that responsibility.
0: Well, first of all, if you've written anything down, um, which you don't have to, but if you have, you better damn well be doing it. Because the worst sin, worse than not writing anything down, is writing something down and not doing it. I meet founders who really believe, and then they hire the, the jerk for their vice president of something, and they let you know him or her sort of get away on the edge cases. And that, every, you got to remember, everybody in the company watches... And that makes them cynics, and that makes you a liar.
2: It's just that much harder. It's just
0: that much harder. So um, first of all is, are you? and walking the talk is a dumb thing, but are you really saying something once a month that you're going to pay attention to and pay attention to it? I talk to HR people who want to know about reward and recognition systems and buy software that takes care and giving people... Like sometimes it's just like, that's what I'm talking about. You did that. That's great. That's cool. Right? So, that, so modeling that behavior, right? So that's modeling giving feedback. But we think that giving feedback means constructive criticism, means telling somebody something they don't want to hear in a nice way that they don't really understand because you're worried about being nice more than you're worried about giving them the... right? And so the problem with that is um, constructive criticism is not that effective. That bad thing you did, again, that's a bad thing. You stop doing that bad thing, okay? Don't do that bad thing again. The next time you do it, because you will, you'll feel bad. It's called guilt tripping. Our parents use it all the time. Eventually, it works, right? Because you're like, I, was, I wasn't supposed to do that bad thing. But if I catch you instead doing the good thing, right? Th- this is it, right here. In this moment, right, when I, you don't ever talk in a meeting, but you grouse about it afterwards, and I call on you, and you're like, yeah, I don't agree, and here's the reason why. Then, then, to follow that wonderful moment up with it, that's what I'm talking about, right? We can't, you don't have a voice unless we hear it. Here's an example. When I met Reed early at our first company, I mean, he was a, God, I don't even know if he'd run a team before. So here he is, CEO of a company. He's a complete geek, too, at this point. And um, his original product that he wrote, the software that he wrote, was a runtime error detection system. So found errors in your software as you were making them. That kind of guy. So he was very negative, right? He was critical all the time. So I said, I got an assignment for you this week. I want you to find five people in the company doing something right and tell them. And he said, why? And I'm like, because I don't think you're very good at it. And I think it, you could use the practice. He what do you mean I'm not very good at it? I'm like, you know, been, we've been together now for a year, and don't recall you ever telling somebody in the moment, great job. He's like, well, that's you know, not necessarily my job. I'm like, you, can you? are you, like, afraid of the assignment, figure you can't? He's like, no, oh, I could do that this afternoon. I'm like, okay, here's the deal. They have to come tell me. They have to come tell me that you talked to them. You can, you can bribe them. I don't care. But I have to hear from him. Um, So Monday goes by and Tuesday goes by. Wednesday goes by. And I'm like, so what up? He's like, well, you know, I'm a busy guy. I'm the CEO of the company. I don't have time to go around and do all this stuff. I'm like, do you want me to tell you five people? And you could just go tell them and complete the assignment? He's like, no, I think I can figure it out. I'm like, well, then figure it out. Thursday afternoon, somebody comes in and goes, wow, I'm going to take my wife out to dinner tonight. It was an amazing day. He came by my cubicle and he knew what I was working on. And he said, wow, I, just, I was just looking at what you were doing. It's really great stuff. It's like, uh, I just... Uh, uh, it was that simple. And that modeling in the moment, that's culture. It's what you do. right? If you say you're going to be candid, if you say you're going to be open and honest with each other, it's about that stuff. It's about the little stuff. You can make it up as you go along, right? So you just, you have to be somebody that poses the question. Hey, by the way, I've noticed we're late all the time, and I'm worried that's becoming a norm. What do you guys think about it? Is it okay? What are the pros and cons of allowing that wiggle room, right? Because it's inefficient. That's why, talk, that's why I talk about politics in the same way. I'm gonna stab you in the back, I gotta get a knife, I gotta turn around, I gotta got yeah. kill you, I gotta get rid of the body. I mean, this is, this is a lot of work to sure. do that. Um, it's much easier for me to go, You're making me crazy, stop doing that. And then you do, and then I don't have to sabotage you. <laughs> that modeling in the moment, that's culture. It's what you do. If you say you're gonna be candid, if you say you're gonna be open and honest with each other, it's about that stuff. It's about the little stuff.
1: Culture is the sum of all the little things. It's modeling that behavior and those habits that you want to be successful. And I really love the example of positive reinforcement versus rebuking someone, because I think that that also bucks traditional convention as well. I mean, I guess to me it's tough because
2: does that mean that I'm not supposed to tell you you're doing a bad job? I mean, that's kind of my natural reaction to this. I don't know if that's what Patty is saying.
1: Sure, and personally, this is also really hard for me because I naturally see what's wrong, uh, for better and for worse. But studies have shown that giving positive reinforcement does work on a much, much better basis. My whole thing here is that the struggle really comes in in owning who you are and owning who you want to be as a company in particular. Right. And
2: even Netflix struggled with this.
1: Yeah, they did. Because some of the things that you're going to choose as behaviors or some of the things you're going to really observe or want to basically nurture, they're not necessarily the most politically correct when you write them down on a piece of paper. But what you have to remember is that you're not a friend club. You're striving to succeed at something. You're striving to be a high performer. And at the end of the day, that requires making those tough decisions and being true to that journey that you're on. You can own mediocrity, though, right? I mean, Patty is
2: basically saying as long as you write it down and own it, that's okay.
1: I think you're technically right, but I don't believe that's the intent that Patty's going with. Meaning, it, uh, but I guess I guess you're right though. Definitely, if it's on paper and you're going to own it and you want to come in, you know, four hours a week, etc., that that's totally fine. Just not here at ProfitWell. Okay, but but putting it down on paper that's where this Netflix
2: culture deck comes into play.
1: Exactly. But it wasn't as simple as just putting it down on paper. And and for those of you who, who don't know what the Netflix culture deck is, this was basically what Patty and the rest of the team, the exec team at Netflix, were putting down on paper their culture, their values, et cetera. And the reason it went so viral is because it wasn't just this Enron list of values on the wall. It was something that was so real and 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 had a little bit of this not-quite-PC language in it, especially when it came to describing the behaviors that they were looking for at Netflix.
2: Patty points out, though, here, that a big piece of this is that this was not a short process.
0: You know, it took 10 years to write. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so we wrote it. Uh, every chapter was written after the chapter before it. So the first chapter, which is the values part, right, which we wrote as behaviors. When I was there, we rewrote at least parts of that six times, right? So we'd take things out or we'd put things in. Mm -hmm. And this is how we would test it. We would start with our executive team and say, okay, let's look at the values and see if they're still valid. Okay, the value of curiosity, name somebody. Right, name somebody on your team that exhibited that. Give me an example of that on your team in the last week. Like and if we went around, we couldn't come up with anything, we'd say, ooh, I wonder if that's still, if it's something we don't see all the time, are we sure it's still valuable? Or did we say it's important, but we don't have any, anything that reinforces it in the culture? Like, here's a funny one. I wanted to write the first time. Reed and I brainstormed it. I get on the board with my whiteboard with my pen and I write. We don't like stupid people. <laughs> and He goes, we can't write that. I'm like, but it's true. I mean, if people just can't intellectually keep up. You know, you have zero tolerance for them. So why don't we just hire smart people? He like, goes, you can't say you're going to hire smart people. I'm like, why not? Like, what if we just said you had to be smart? And then, I mean, we used all these, you know, people would come in and go, do I have to have an IQ test? You know, and we did it, you know, and then it was interpreted as you had to have a degree from a good school, or you had to be mathematically smart, because that's the only thing we cared about or so it was really interesting to kind of parse through that over the years because at one time we had like intelligence and then it was about like innate curiosity and so we wordsmithed all that so that was Mm -hmm. that always that's the first chapter of the culture deck still is in reed's book Um, so one of the things that took a long long time Mm -hmm. to get the the bench strength to do is to get people who could articulate deliverables so that people could do them so the key to the culture was about um performance was that you got great stuff done on time that served the customer with quality that's it right? And so you had to be able to articulate to your teams what that was, right? You had to have the right, that's where high performance comes in. You need to have people that perform that task in that time frame. So that articulation is sort of the underpinning of the culture, which is about deliverables, about reliability, about dependability, about counting on each other,
1: Notice how it wasn't just about saying something or putting something down on paper that may not necessarily sound the greatest when said out loud, but it was also making sure you had the team to back it up. And in this way, it was on you to basically articulate this to the team as as an exec team, as a management team. And this this is insanely tough. People are at
2: the center of this. We've belabored that nobody is arguing with it, but what I think people are struggling with is... While it's easy to agree with, this is definitely something that is hard to
1: execute. Exactly. This is insanely difficult to execute on because you're basically pointing out ideals and then following through on those ideals with imperfect parts, right? You know, humans, right? And and not wanting to to necessarily do the right thing because it doesn't feel great, right? And so for the rest of this, I, I, the rest of the show, I think we should focus in on actual applications. And we're going to start with how you can start to implement these concepts into probably one of the most important parts of your business, the hiring process. And Patty actually starts off by telling us how she would have handled the James Daymore situation. And for those of you who don't remember, James Damore was a Google engineer who wrote that very controversial memo where he was basically positing that the biological differences between men and women were the reason that there weren't as many female engineers. And let's see what Patty has to say.
0: So like every reporter in the world called me about that. Like, would you fire him? I'm like, of course, what a dork move. I'm like, but you know what? I like to think I wouldn't have hired him. You know he was a twit in the interview. You know he was. How you know do you
1: vet for some stuff like that, though? You are
0: twits. They, you know, you, <laughs> for, you know this, right? You know exactly who he was. I bet you that he was smarter than his last boss, and the boss before that, and the one before that. In fact, he probably had some very defined opinions about the way he wrote code.
1: Spaces over tabs, right?
0: you know what i mean right you get these people who have these like you know quasi-religious beliefs about certain and you know this here's how i interview um i everybody asks me my favorite interview question i don't have one you take anything on their resume anything oh you're at google and you worked on um search you're in charge of you led the search you led search for google Oh, you were on the team that worked on some search products. Which products? How many people were on the team? 400. Okay, so you're an individual contributor. Okay, so tell me um, what you you did and what you learned if you had to do it over again, you'd do differently. Tell me about something that worked out, but it could have been better and you would have done it differently, right? So now I'm going to look for people who want to solve problems, right? And that person wants to tell you about their accomplishments you just pull tell me more tell me how you did that really what kind of boss was he did you like working for him did they, what, what what was good about that right so yeah. what makes you crazy
1: i like that because it's because the the response to the you know the the not what he did but your comments about oh he's probably his boss he's smarter than his boss. Smarter than his. Someone might go, oh, he just got a chip on his shoulder, we like that, right? But there's a difference between someone who has a chip on their shoulder and someone who has that quasi-religious belief. I
0: actually don't like it.
1: Yeah? You don't like the chip on your shoulder? I don't like the chip no. on your
0: shoulder. I don't like the two. It just bugs okay. me, right? It's like, um, so how you get that thing off? Because it's, it's an impediment, right? And so you're going to carry this stuff around with you for the rest of your life and it's your excuse for not getting along with other people? It's, it just it, This is my thing about it. It's not age, it's maturity, right? A mature person says, yeah, I, you know, I was young, <laughs> right? And I, I thought I was the smartest bear in the room, and yeah, and I regret re- doing that.
2: So maturity is a pretty big deal here, and I believe that Patty's major point here is that it's not that you shouldn't have that discussion,
1: it's just you should examine how that discussion is handled. I think you're right. And this is what Patty gets into when she talks about this concept of hiring fully functional adults, which is a completely disconnected concept from actual age. But what I struggle with with this concept around maturity and fully functioned adults is that it's a bit of a chicken or the egg. I don't know about your career, I, I bet it's in your career as well, but definitely for my career, Every job I've ever had, I, I was treated like a child, not you know, actually like a child, but in the sense of here's this policy, don't do this, do that. I, I wasn't allowed to kind of flourish with my own judgment, and that hindered a lot of different things. That hindered a lot of different creativity. It hindered a lot of different curiosity points, and ultimately probably didn't get the best performance out of me because that's why I ended up leaving those, those places that I was at people become
2: political that's just part of being in a work environment and i'm, yeah, not, I'm not, not talking not, yeah, about yeah, yeah, democrat gotcha. and republican you know I'm, t- I'm talking about gossip you know like like children but patty's got a really good way to level set those expectations and it's through the onboarding process and i'll let her explain it because it's just a phenomenal metaphor for what we're talking about
0: you guys are kind of triathletes you are triathletes so here's the deal um you're very smart, and you have a track record of getting stuff done. That's really valuable to us. We're going to call that cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you're uh, really good at articulating, hiring, leading people. That's, that's really great. We're going to call that running. Um, uh, you're also really adept at company politics because it matters at your company. It matters how much budget you get, how many open recs you get, how big of a team. That's swimming. We don't have goggles. We don't get wet. We don't have a pool. I mean, it's not like that swimming isn't good, and, and I get that. Like, we're just, yeah. we're kind of like biathlete. We don't, yeah. No, know. And, so, and I'm like, and it's, and it's going to be sad. You're going to miss it. You're going to be like, where's the pool? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm awesome at swimming, right? And oh, by the way, if those three things, if that's your biggest strength, you're in the wrong place. Cool. And you can't, you know, it is real, In some companies, and it's you got to have it to survive. Yahoo is very much that way. Yeah, it was, and because so many changes, you know, everybody had to manipulate where they were in the organization. And so it was tough. So it was hard to dig through and find the people that actually wanted to get stuff done there.
1: Do you find, and this is like tangential to this, but do you find with the concepts of debating, you know, openly, the concepts of, um, you know, making your voice heard, you know, getting more feedback in the loop, fighting those inches. Do, do you find it's hard for companies, because a lot of times when companies are ready to hear what you have to say, unfortunately they are 50 people, 150 people.
0: You know, it's, it's kind of for you and your leadership team, it's about conducting the orchestra. Yeah. So you have to teach people how. So here's a couple mm-hmm. of tips. Um, like, it's a hard thing to say that to a bunch of introverts who don't have the skills to do it, right? So everybody needs to be speaking up and be <coughs> candid and be straightforward with people. And, you know, you're looking around at people who, like, haven't had a conversation with another human in a pretty long time. Um, so, But you have to teach them to do that. You have to say, when you're in that meeting, right, if there's people who aren't ever speaking in the meeting, is it because they don't belong there? Right? Or they're just there to witness, or they're there to witness and grouse afterwards, whatever it is. But you can say, I haven't heard from you. What do you think on this? Right? What's, what's, what, what are your thoughts? Right? You can call people and ask them. The other thing is, you can the, the people that are the problem finders, that think they're very valuable. Problem finders always think they're special people, and um, they can be, if taught. So finding problems isn't all that hard, right? I mean, and having it be somebody else's problem. But you can say, wow, I understand you think you thought that was a pretty bad decision we made. Um, So two questions. One, if you were me, what decision would you make? More importantly, if you were me, what information would you want to know to make a good decision about? I like that. Yeah, and you can teach people. And once you do that, you do that every single time then nobody's going to open their mouth and complain unless they've got an idea about how to fix it when people uh, get confused about i don't believe in development i do i do but it's in every moment it's in every conversation the deep part of the culture isn't anything that we wrote in the document it's that hunger for like what's a new way of doing it how do we how do we explore that that curiosity that so i would rather develop and nurture curiosity than anything else curiosity and judgment those two are my pillars right and if you have people with good judgment you don't have to have that many rules so so check yourself when when you get pressure to like it's about time maybe we should write a policy that says people shouldn't do this then you if you don't have people who aren't smart enough to make the right call.
1: Curiosity and judgment were the biggest underpinnings there for me, because if you hire a fully functional adult and you get them over their corporate PTSD of politicking and protecting their own dog bowl, all of a sudden you have a situation where you don't need a bunch of rules, you don't need a bunch of policies, and all of a sudden you don't need to explain to them how to actually perform.
2: Right, because they perform out of their curiosity and drive. And you don't have to deal with a bunch of BS just because they're adults. Here's a big gripe though. Uh, none of us are particularly good at this, especially when with things like scaling. And a lot of it just feels like spouting wisdom, like, you know, hype beasts. We don't we don't want to be hype beasts. So
1: how do you deal with a particular problem like this? How do you handle it? Well, I think this really comes down to what Patty's been talking about, right? Your first step is to codify the behaviors that you're observing and that you want to nurture, not the ones that you want to aspire to be. If it's not something you're actually doing, don't write it down, right, as Patty already said. From there, then it really becomes your job to protect the hustle in a way that you hire the right people, you nurture the right people, and you get rid of the wrong people. I don't think Patty would like that phrase, the the wrong people. You're right. Patty would not like the phrase, the wrong people. But I think that she would agree with the sentiment that I'm trying to get at, which is Ultimately, it's, it's your job to make sure that you're not only protecting the hive by hiring the right people, nurturing the right people, trimming the people who aren't working out, but it's also really, really great for that individual, because if they're in a role that they're not succeeding at, that they're not happy in, it's probably not great for them either. And you don't want to just have them sitting there miserable and, and kind of commiserating with the team that they really should be moved off of anyways.
2: I, I really like her take here, but the concept does make me a little bit uncomfortable.
1: I think it's a lot of the conditioning that you have to get over. We've been conditioned that any departure of someone from a role or from a company is just a terrible thing. And in reality, it's, it's probably the best thing not only for the company, but also that actual person. And so I want you to pay particularly close attention to when she talks about performance plans because I think that crystallizes
0: this entire concept beautifully. I tell this HR people that I'm like, you know how sometimes you hire somebody to do a job And then they do it, and then it's done. And now we're worried about what to do next, and they did that thing that they're really good at doing that you really need to get done, and now it's done. And you don't need them to iterate, they don't want to. That, you know, the builder is not the maintainer usually, right, it's two different frames of mind, right? So when you make the builder the maintainer, now you've made an unhappy person. Right. And you've also made yourselves unhappy because not very good maintainers.
1: This is something I struggle with, though, because Everybody like you just does. said, it took you four years to get to that infrastructure. How do you how do you maintain? So, so right now, if I look at my team, my direct team as well, there's a couple of people where it's, man, that reliability, the high performance, there's potential. Maybe they just need to be coached. Maybe they just need this. You, Maybe use, you, just need you that. use my yeah.
0: methodology that I think is in Chapter six, yeah, which yeah. is <laughs> yeah. you know the one where you go six months out and you yeah. put, and, and you do and, the movie yeah. of the amazing team and you work backwards, and then yeah. you could come back and say, "You know, man, I love you. I, we couldn't be here without you. You've sure. done an incredible job, but like going forward, when we're starting to talk about complexity and scale, accuracy, you know, you're never on time. And it's, I don't, I get it. I mean, we got here with it, but we're not going to get there with it.
1: So in your mind, when you're, when you're looking at the six-month movie of like, this is reality, it's got to be someone that is already clearly trending towards that.
0: You know, it doesn't have to be. You can still, you can say, um, hey, uh, I just described the t- what the team's going to look like. And um, I got to be totally honest with you. If you walked in the door, I'm not sure I'd hire you for that team. But, man, you got the spirit and you, uh, you know, you got the DNA and you care about the customer and I'm willing to take a risk if you will. But here's the deal. If you can't do it, we have to have somebody in the job that can. Right. And so when you set somebody up that you're going to take a risk with them, then that's really different than um, we can do it. You can do it. I'll develop you. I'll coach you. I'll get you there when in your gut. You know that's not going to happen. You know, so if you hire somebody that's not competent, you failed. They didn't fail. They don't have any guilt at all. They just they couldn't do it. You got them through, and they can't do it now. You do that sometimes when you're making shit up because you don't really know what it takes. And then sometimes when you hire that person you think was going to be perfect because that's the way you would do it, you realize, no, it's, no, there's it should be. I should have hired somebody completely opposite of me who would have thought of something completely yeah. different. So now I got another me. Now we're making the same mistake twice, yeah. <laughs> often, right? So, um, so that's that. I got rid of performance improvement plans for people that I knew we just didn't need anymore, right? And I don't. And I had to be able to say, "I love you. I do. I just don't need you anymore, man." So I want not going to put you on a ninety-day performance improvement plan. You're a terrific performer. I just don't need you to back up sing that song anymore, right? Um, so, and you're great backup singer right so what band can you join next right so we can do that why would I do that so I had to get rid of that and instead I would say okay instead of us spending the next 90 days proving you're incompetent which you aren't in writing in front of your peers why don't I just write you a check and we can start brainstorming where you can go next right and what should I you know what are you going to take away and what are you going to leverage and how am I going to reference you and how are we going to make that happen right and we can be all sad about breaking up but we can also be grownups about moving on, right? My, my, my internalization that took me years to realize that this is what I did, I wanted us to be a great place to be from.
2: Man, to me, that's that's the perfect thesis. A great place to be from.
1: I almost don't want to say anything else because that's just where where the concept should end. But to make sure we're doing our diligence here, culture is that collection of habits that you nurture amongst the people that you accept and that you keep within your organization. And it's everything.
2: Right. And I have to say I was wrong from before. You know, uh, culture is not a bill of rights. It's not a constitution. It's not the things that you write on the wall. It's, as Patty says so brilliantly, it's about the little things.
1: Absolutely. And the leadership at your company, it's their responsibility. It's it's the responsibility of everyone, but especially the exec team and the managers to make sure that they're reinforcing those habits in every single moment that they can and they're not absolving their responsibility to check boxes and performance reviews and things like that that feel like they're taking care of that problem or that opportunity and culture. But in reality, they're not really reinforcing positively those behaviors that you want to see in those habits that you should see within that company. But what's beautiful about this is that when you get this right, and so much of it is intent, and so much of it is just fighting the good fight every single day, even though you know it's never going to be perfect, but when you fight that fight, that's how you create a great place to be from. Special thanks to Patty McCord, whose book Powerful is available now. And actually, we are giving away 25 copies of Patty McCord's book, Powerful, to those individuals who enjoyed the episode. You can go to iTunes, give us a nice five-star review and a nice healthy comment. And if they screenshot that review and send it to Patrick at ProfitWell.com, we will take care of you and send you Patty's book.
2: Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and yours truly, Ben Hillman, with help from interns Alyssa Chan
1: and Robert Byrne. This episode is brought to you by Wistia, video software for the video-loving business. Wistia.com